Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, freedom of religion uh, this morning, but first we need to show you a video and just do need to warn you, it's not my home video, okay? This is not me at the beach somewhere. No swimsuits were used in the production of this sermon, so you're all safe, okay? So relax. And let's just watch Mark Edwards, who's uh, speaking on behalf of the ACC National Executive. Thank you for participating in our Freedom of Religion Sunday. And can I tell you, this is a really important day. My name is Mark Edwards and I'm the Senior Pastor of City Hope Church in Ipswich, Queensland. And for the past seven years, I've been representing the National Executive of Australian Christian churches in the area of freedom of religion. Now, recently, an event has occurred which has caused us a lot of alarm in relation to freedom of religion in our nation. The Australian Law Reform Commission have produced a report that faith-based schools, that's us, Christian schools, do not have the right to employ staff who actually agree with the ethos and the values of the particular school. Now, can I tell you, that's an affront to religious freedom. In a few moments, you're going to be told how you can get involved. And I really do need you to get involved. This is the most vital time because we know that report is going to be sent to every member of parliament within the next couple of weeks. This is the time when every single one of us can't take a backward step, but needs to say, how can I help the cause of religious freedom in this nation? And if you do get involved, your children and your grandchildren will say thank you. And so will I. And so will our movement, Australian Christian Churches. So that's what we're talking about today, freedom of religion. And um, uh, I'll talk a little bit later and we'll have some information to provide to you about how you can get involved. But first of all, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about why you should be involved. Indeed, why you must be involved in, in protecting religious freedom. And fundamentally, it's got nothing to do with us. It's got nothing to do with the people in this room. It's got nothing to do with those of you watching online. Freedom of religion is not about us. It's, as Mark said, you know, ultimately about young guys like this. Our children, our ch grandchildren, if you have them, or potential children or grandchildren. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's talk first about what we mean by freedom of religion. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, was proclaimed by the UN General Assembly back in 1948 in Paris. So just after World War II finished in that sort of moment of the world trying to gather together uh, and, and not have a world where we went back into war, but a world that was full of peace. It talks about the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion that applies to everyone. Not just some people, but everyone. Everyone has that freedom for thought, conscience and belief. And the right to change religion or belief. But also includes the freedom, whether by yourself or with others, in private or in public, to manifest your religion 
in teaching, practice, worship and observance. Basically to live out your faith. As, as Katie said, to be that 24-7 that uh, Christian. To walk out of this place wearing your Christian badge and being a Christian to the Uber driver, to others. The Declaration claims to set out for the first time fundamental human rights to be universally protected. An ambitious statement, ambitious goal. But international law, freedoms actually go back far further than that. Religious freedom isn't something created in 1948. In 1648, the Peace of Westphalia actually captured for the very first time the right of freedom of religion, the freedom to practice your religion in an international treaty between nations. Going back earlier than that, in 1598, so, you know, if you watch the coronation, you saw all these old 1600s, early, uh, you know, all these old um, uh, objects and, and um, chairs. We're going back to 1598, the Edict of Nantes, signed by King Henry IV of France, gave the minority Protestants in France, which was a majority Catholic country, the right to practice their faith. There's been a long history of recognising religious freedom as a fundamental freedom in a, in a political legal sense. Our High Court actually recognised it in a case back in the early 1900s here in Australia as being the essence of a free society, the ability to hold to a belief, to manifest that belief. Of course, going back further, if we go back to Roman times, during the Roman empires, and there were a few in, in uh, different uh, variations of the Roman Empire, there was a form of religious freedom. You know, I was struck again when we uh, were coming around the Easter time, the Easter message, you know, the, the moment where um, Pilate interacted with uh, the, the Jewish people. You know, as we focus on Christ's death and resurrection, the power of the state in that moment, the power of Pilate as a representative of the Roman Empire and the state. And it's interesting to me when you read John's more detailed account of that, that event, how it's the critical moment, the moment where Pilate turned to the path of crucifying Christ was when the Jesus authorities portrayed when the Jewish authorities portrayed Jesus as undermining the authority of the Roman Empire. Pilate was less worried about claims of divinity, matters of faith and, and religion. He didn't seem to be perturbed by, by the Christ being the king of the Jews. But when they said, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar, that's when he acted. During a later phase of the Roman Empire, there was, of course, persecution of Christians under, under Nero and others. And then later still, there was uh, Christianity as the official state religion. So it waxed and waned over the years, religious freedom. And Christians through those the centuries have not always you know, behaved perfectly. Not, we've not always been without fault. Um, if you read the Old Testament, of course, you know the people of Israel weren't always without fault either as God's people. But through the centuries, it's been fundamentally the Judeo-Christian nations that have honoured religious freedom. I'm not sure how many of you watched the, the coronation last night. It's the first time in my lifetime, likely to be the last. Um, so we, we sat down and watched it. But you had a very clear 
sense of it being a religious service. The first thing that King Charles did was put his hands on on the Bible. He was given that, that Bible, capturing the most important thing in the world, the truth of God. He was... Uh, sworn an oath, swore an oath about continuing the Protestant tradition and the established church within the UK, but also recognising the ability of others to live within the kingdom according, according to their customs and traditions. And you would have seen the involvement of a range of faith leaders in that service of coronation. A religious freedom in practice. Again, that shouldn't be a surprise. It's uh, the principle of individual freedom finds its foundation in Christian teaching. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's go back to Genesis, the story of creation. The epic story of God bringing us into being. And we read here in, in verse 27 of the very first chapter of Genesis. So God created man... In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we've got men and women created in the image of God. Nothing else in creation is said to be created in God's image. Yet evidently, that's fundamental to who we are. That doesn't mean we're little gods. It's, it certainly separates us from the rest of creation, but it doesn't mean we're, we're little gods. But, you know, and we can't really categorically say what that, that having the image of God entails. But we certainly possess something of the, of the divine, something more than just the rest of creation, the rest of the animals. There's something different about us. We have an inherent dignity and worth that's unique amongst all creation. We're more than just molecules and the material. And along with that inherent dignity, we're also granted freedom. And if you look at the, the next chapter in Genesis, the second chapter, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So after being created and being imbued with that image of God, we're then granted freedom to eat of anything in the garden except for that one lone tree. Now, of course, we, we know how the story ends. We know that, that they ate from that, that tree. And there are consequences to that, consequences that we still feel today and, and still evident in, in our world. And from that moment on, the, the biblical story, when you read the biblical story, it talks about God's activity calling men and women back to himself and of his plan to redeem them. But not once do we find that God violated humanity's freedom to choose between their own sinful ways and his. You know, he, restored, he resorted to considerable instruction and occasional punishment but at no time did he actually force us to follow a spiritual path and not allow us to make our own choice around our spiritual path. And we also see Jesus, the Son of God, who didn't come to be served but came as a servant himself. In all these interactions, he calls people to respond to him but always allowing people to make their choices. 
He doesn't force himself upon us. And when we read here in Matthew of him lamenting over the city of Jerusalem, 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 how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. He doesn't force the people of Jerusalem to accept him. The importance of free choice of faith is too important for him to do that. So we have humankind, you and me, the person sitting next to you, the person on the other side of you, the person behind you, the person in front of you, imbued with this incredible dignity and worth, incredible value but also with incredible freedom. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights didn't create human rights. It merely recognised some of the consequences of who we are made in the image of God and with that freedom and dignity and worth that we have. Fearfully and wonderfully made, granted freedom, not without consequences, but always, always with hope. And these rights then became part of international law and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, And there's lots of words up on the screen. I'm not expecting you to read all of them. Um, This is an international treaty that applied to Australia from the 13th of November 1980. It's what Australia says we're going to do as a nation to protect the individual human rights of people. Lots of words, but many of them are familiar, uh, if you can see what's on the screen. Everyone should have the right of freedom, thought, conscience and religion. You can do that in community with others, as we're doing here today or or watching online. You can do it in private or in public. And you can manifest your religion. You can live it out. You can wear your Christian badge out out in the streets and your daggy Christian clothes and this cross that sort of hangs down there, you know, Jesus sandals, all that sort of thing if you want. You can manifest your religion in worship, observance, practice and teaching. You can change your religion. And the government, the state, can only limit that in such ways that are necessary to protect public safety, order, health or morals or fundamental rights and freedoms of other. Very constrained uh, ability for the state to limit that. And it also goes on to recognise that states will accept the liberty of parents to teach their young people, to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their, with their religion. Now, while we've been a party to this since 1980, there have been enormous uh, number of inquiries, literally dozens of inquiries and reports that have said that we don't meet that standard. We say we're going to do this, but we don't meet it. In fact, some of those inquiries more recently have been saying that, to the contrary, legal protections for religious freedom have been reducing. Uh, in my day job, I'm involved with Christian schools and talking with the space, working with people like Mark Edwards. And as we engage more and more with um, other faiths, when you talk to people from the Islamic community, from the Jewish community, they'll share of the increased uh, discrimination that they're suffering, the vilification that they're suffering. Um, Islamic women walking along the street who'll have literally the hijab ripped off them. I mean, what an affront that is to, to them. Jewish people who are still 
abused and subject to anti-Semitic vilification. And Christians aren't immune from this either. I'm not sure what your experience is. And there's a, a website, Australia Watch, where it has some of the stories captured uh, around discrimination against, against Christians. Ordinary people going about their lives. And you can go there and look at the cases, and they're really just the tip of the iceberg. The, the ones that have come across uh, needing to engage lawyers like the Human Rights Law Alliance uh, to actually protect their rights. But those cases are increasing. At the same time, many Christian organisations, especially Christian schools at the moment, are facing increased restrictions, including the proposals that Mark talked about in the, in the video, which would curtail our right to employ staff who actually agree with the ethos and values of the particular school. At the extreme end of these restrictions, we have legislation in Victoria that explicitly includes prayer-based practices in potentially criminal conduct. So let me just say that again. Prayer-based practices as criminal conduct with consent to that prayer being irrelevant. In fact, the Victorian Equal Opportunity Human Rights Commission goes on to go so far as to say that that potentially criminal prayer may include prayer where the person being prayed for isn't even present. Now, I don't expect that they're going to be throwing people in jail in Victoria for praying anytime soon. That's not, not what the legislation is really trying to do. But it's certainly creating considerable fear amongst many people of faith in Victoria who are aware of it. Back to schools. The proposals Mark talked about in the, the ALRC consultation paper are the most radical ever made. They would completely remove the protections for religious freedom for Christian schools in the Sex Discrimination Act. And we have up there on the screen just a couple of the comments made about those proposals. In addition to that, there was 34 faith leaders from a broad sweep of faith and Christian denominations who wrote to the Attorney General to express their deep, deep concern about the proposals. The two largest groups of Christian schools in Australia withdrew their involvement from the consultation process, something they'd never done before because they had completely lost faith in the process because of the, the radical nature of the proposals. Now, since Mark recorded that video, we've we've had the, uh, the Attorney-General grant an extension to the Law Reform Commission to not report back and, and provide their report in a couple of weeks, but sometime before the end of the year to MPs and parliamentarians. And that's only happened because of a significant uproar from people of faith across the country. We've made an impact in getting those proposals pushed back or reconsidered. But we need to keep up that pressure if we're actually going to get proposals that are fair we need to keep up that pressure to really have an ongoing impact. But at the end of the day, as I said before, it's, it's uh, not really about Christian schools seeking to protect themselves. You know, we've seen here in the ACT the proposals to reduce freedoms for Christian schools that were introduced in 2018. Earlier this year, those same proposals, legislation was passed to apply them to churches from next year. That's the longer term aim. But again, it's not really about churches, although that's cutting to the heart of uh, expressing your faith. The end game here is to, to really block the gospel. 
If you just have your private faith, if you just come together like this on weekends with lots of other religious weirdos and and, and in your little holy huddle and and have a great time worshipping God, nobody cares. Nobody cares. You can come and do this. No one's going to give a toss. It's about when you go out into the world, when we make an impact, when we preach the gospel, when we make disciples, when we reach out to every nation and tongue, that's when people get concerned. Now, Christian schools exist to help parents train up the next generation, to pass on the faith, to share the gospel with those who are yet to receive it. That's why we're under attack. And up on the screen is a selection of comments we've captured from parents and staff that illustrate this. But again, it's not just about Christian schools. Canberra City Care exists to be the hands and feet of Christ, ministering in a very practical way to people in our community. And they do that not because they're nice people, although yet they are nice people. They do that because of their faith, to share their love. Life, you see, exists to live lives connected to Christ, his cause and community, not just to come together and, and worship God on a Sunday. If that's all we're doing, we're not doing enough. We choose staff in these organisations to reflect Christ to those we model, meet, to model Christ, to witness to Christ in their actions, their interactions and their words. Words that come from the overflow of their heart and their personal relationship with God. Now, of course, if we lose the legal protections, the gospel will still be preached. But, gee, it's going to be much harder. It's going to take much more courage. It's going to be far more difficult, if not impossible, for Christian schools to train up the next generations if we can't employ staff who share our beliefs. It'll take greater courage for you to speak to your colleagues at work, to your neighbours, to your friends, to your family. It won't crush the gospel. We know that from the persecuted church around the world. But it's going to make it more difficult. Imagine just for a minute a world where we have to be concerned about gathering together to pray. But praying is what we need to do. Praying is certainly something we need to do. We're reminded in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but ultimately against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And I've certainly seen myself the, the power of prayer when I've been in meetings with MPs up at Parliament House and words come out of your mouth and you think, where'd that come from? That wasn't me, that was just the Holy Spirit because people were praying. It is a spiritual battle going on when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel and that's what's at the heart here. We're also called to pray especially for our leaders, rulers and their governments to rule well. And note what that means. Now the outcome of these prayers so we can go quietly about our business or as another translation says, that we may live peacefully and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We're called to pray for our leaders. Now, we're called to pray for Peter Kane, you know, in the assembly here in the ACT. We're called to pray for other leaders here locally and nationally. Prayer must be the starting point, but we hope it's not going to be the ending point. If you want to help the cause of religious freedom in this nation, as Mark Edwards has suggested, 
we're asking that you write a letter or send an email. I'm not talking about an email through um, a campaign website like My Christian Schools that I had up earlier. I mean, they have their place, but they're simply, it's simply a numbers game. We're talking about people sending a letter from you personally to a local MP or senator. And we have five representatives in the federal parliament here in the ACT, and they're up on the screen um, in a moment, hopefully. There they are, their lovely smiling faces. So Senators Gallagher and Pocock on the bottom represent the whole of Canberra. Anyone can write to them. MPs Alicia Payne, Andrew Lee, David Smith up at the top um, represent the federal seats of Canberra, Fenner and Bean, respectively. Now, at the end of the service, uh, end of the service this morning, Ed and Rachel will have some more information for you. They'll have contact details for all these people, how to check your electorate if you don't know what electorate you're in, and what to say in a letter and how to say it. So we're not going to beat up on these people, but share our concerns. And if you've got any questions, you can also email me. Um, uh, my church email here is mark.s at lifeuc.com.au. I'm happy to, to engage with you around this issue and, and keep talking about what we need to do. But fundamentally, we're looking for you to actually get engaged, get involved, write those personal letters and take a stand to help us make sure we maintain that freedom so that the gospel message can go out. We're seeking freedom of religion not for ourselves, but for those who are not yet in this room, not yet watching online. Those to whom the gospel needs to be shared. So I've talked a little this morning about um, our inherent dignity, how we're created in the image of God with that value and worth. I've talked about the freedom God has given us, the freedom to respond to his call, to accept him as Christ, Lord and Saviour, or to continue to follow our own path. As Jesus cried out about longing to gather Jerusalem to himself, he also longs to gather you in a relationship with him.